I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. Brian Eno is an artist in so many genres, I had to write him down. He's a musician. He's a composer. He invented ambient music. He's a producer of all the great albums you've ever seen. He's an installation artist who's uh, worked all over the world. He's a political activist, and I would say not a right-winger. <laughs> He's an author. He's been a Long Now board member from the very beginning. He named the foundation and the clock Long Now. Ten years ago, the occasion for tonight, he was the first SALT speaker. He co-designed with Danny Hillis, and they are still working on the chimes for the 10,000-year clock. Uh, he came and did an installation piece called the 77 Million Paintings, and he is now working on when the salon opens uh, for our museum and bar and office and everything else thrown together at Fort Mason. He will be doing the music and visuals for that place. So in a sense, you could say that one of Brian Eno's genres is long now. Danny Hillis is an incredibly prolific inventor. Uh, yes, massive parallel processing, which is the way computation happens. Uh, whenever you use your smartphone with this gesture, Danny invented that. Uh, the MetaWeb, which made Google search um, intelligent as well as brilliant, uh, was bought by Google and, and uh, makes your Google search sensible. Um, he came up with the concept of proteomics, which is a way to basically use massive data of the body to eventually cure cancer. Why not? What's interesting is that he's prolific and he's fast. Uh, he's gone through so many inventions, so it's a tiny sample I just went through. Dozens, hundreds, patents galore. But one invention just keeps going on. 20 years ago, he started inventing the 10,000-year clock of the long now, and he just keeps inventing it. You know, is it a difficult problem? Is it an interesting problem? What is it that would make a musician or an inventor keep bearing down on one body of creativity? Tonight we'll find out. Brian Eno, Danny Hillis. Good evening. Um, the piece of music you heard was played for a reason, actually. Danny and I have been on one of our road trips for the past few days. Um, every year or two, we we go for a drive in the desert um, where he drives and I sit and listen to him talk. <laughs> no, it's not exactly like that. We, we have long conversations and the little box in the front of the car keeps saying, make a legal U-turn as soon as possible. <laughs> because we consistently get lost. Um, even though we, we have two GPS systems in the car, <laughs> we, we don't pay attention to either of them. Um, but we, during these trips, we talk about what we're thinking about, and what I'm thinking about at the moment is a new record that I'm just finishing, of which that is the 
last track. And uh, as you can hear, that track is quite long. And I kept thinking as I was listening to it in the car, this should be longer. <laughs> um, it, it already got expanded quite a lot. It started out, that end part started out as eight bars long. Um, and it's now about 120 bars long. And I think it needs to double or so. And I was thinking as I was doing that, why am I wanting to make it so long? Why do I want it to be that long? And I guess it's because I don't want there to be any mistake that that's what I meant to do. I don't want somebody to think that I just accidentally made it long. <laughs> that I wasn't paying attention or I forgot to do an edit or something like that. I, I want it to be very clear that it is meant to be a long piece of music that sort of stays in the same place for a long time. So I was thinking about that and thinking about how commitment is something that you register in, in a piece of work. You register what somebody has committed themselves to. And I remembered um, back to the time when I first heard about the clock, about Danny's clock. I already knew Danny then, but not very well. And Stuart told me about this idea for a clock. And my first thought was, well, why would you go to all the trouble of building a thing like that? It's a very complicated problem, you know, to try to imagine something that's going to last for 10,000 years um, with all the things that could happen to the world in that time. And I was thinking, why would you bother to do that? Though I sort of liked the idea, too. But I, I was thinking, why don't you just sort of spread the rumor that you have actually done it? <laughs> sort of save yourself a lot of trouble, you know. Um, and but then, over the years, I started thinking, no, it was actually important to do it. To, to actually try to realize this thing was part of the message. To try to actually make it become real. And to be faced with all the difficulties of doing that was part of what the thing was about. Um, so not being virtual was part of it. Um, we, we were talking quite a lot about virtuality and virtualization. Um, and there's... This wonderful theory by, I think it's, his name is Jeffrey Miller, is it, or Gregory Miller? I can't remember the man's name. Um, who theorized that the reason we'd never heard from any other cultures in, in the universe was not because they didn't exist, but because at a certain level of development, all cultures got lost in their own ability to virtualize experiences. So basically, they ended up eating and masturbating. Um, <laughs> and not bothering to communicate with anyone else. <laughs> so, so virtualization is something that we do, and it's, it's a sort of internalization of experience. Um, and I think part of this was the, was the want to externalize something. Um, sorry, darling. <laughs> um, anyway, so about... Almost 20 years ago now, the Long Now Foundation started. And of course, Danny and his clock were at the center of that. So maybe you'll start by telling the audience a little bit about that. Well, it, it occurs to me that getting lost is something that we actually do very well together. Yeah, we're, we're very um, good at losing yeah. ourselves. Yeah, the reason the GPS is always saying to turn around is because we get into a conversation and 
several times we've gone hundreds of miles out of our way. Um, I, I remember particularly the trip up from San Francisco to Monterey where we ended up in Sacramento. While we were, it was <laughs> the whole time, this GPS telling us to please make the next legal U-turn. <laughs> but, but that's actually kind of a metaphor, though, because there's another thing that happens on these trips, which is because we, we usually don't start off these trips with any place in particular in mind mm. that we're going, and we just have some time set aside. And, and the GPS is actually very good for giving you instructions to get to some place, and that little map can kind of show you where your next left turn is and so on. But generally, we actually have no idea where we're going. Yeah. And, and so what usually happens is after a couple of days of sort of frustratingly looking at this little tiny map, we finally get discouraged and we, we go over by the side of the road and we, we find somebody who sells a big paper map. And there's this sort of moment when we open up the map of Nevada or Arizona or yeah. something, and all of a sudden it sort of feels like we're in this much bigger world, that we get out of that little world of the GPS and we're in this. And there are all these places that we will never go and mm -hmm. you know, that really, in some sense, we're not, it's not that useful to navigate by, but somehow there's this sense of relief of we're in this bigger context and all the possibilities of where we might go or where we could go. And in a sense, I think that's what the Long Now Foundation is for, mm. is it's sort of that in time of all of the normal things that we do are kind of like the GPS. We have a goal and we have little instructions to turn left and right, and that's our normal mode of thinking is that little view to get someplace. Mm. And every day we do that, and it's really nice to have some excuse to kind of step back and look at a much bigger space and kind of imagine all the places that we might go, even if we're not going to. Mm -hmm. and, and so the Long Now Foundation, I think, is really an excuse to do that. And I, sometimes I think we slip in with, uh, to the Long Now Foundation, I think we slip into coming across as if we're trying to convince people to think longer term. But I, I don't think it's that prescriptive. I think it's actually much more an excuse for us to be able to have a conversation that's a different kind of conversation than we normally have. Mm. And you know, for, for example, these trips we go on, and I think many of the activities along now get us into different kinds of conversations. So I'm hoping that's what will happen tonight, mm -hmm. is we'll have one of these kind of long now-ish conversations. Maybe not quite like the ones we do on the road trip because those often have like an hour that goes by while we think about something the other one says <laughs> without saying anything. After an hour or something. <laughs> right. No, I actually but, don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like a very slow chess yeah. game. It's fun, yeah, if would... you're, fun if you're doing it. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, never mind, I take that back. <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong. But, but, but this notion of a conversation, I think, is, is kind of, in, in some sense, I'm, I'm starting to see it as one of the greatest possibilities we have to contribute to the future is mm -hmm. if we can start a thread of conversation. Yeah. Maybe a different... Yeah, so, so one of the things I... When, when I talk about art and about the practice of art, I, I often use the word conversation because I, th I think that you never see a piece of art 
on its own. You never see it free from the rest of the conversation that you know to date. So if you look at a painting, and you've looked at a lot of paintings, as most of us have, you look at that painting in relation to that whole conversation of paintings. So, so we're constantly engaged in conversations. And what, what you see when you look at a new painting is the similarities and differences to all the other paintings you've seen. So it, some paintings, of course, are completely meaningless out of that kind of context. You know, if, if you think of um, Kazimir Melievich as white on white, it's, it's hardly a picture, actually, if you think about it. It's a, but it is an important picture in relation to the history of painting until that point. Do, do you know about my white on white paintings? I actually have my bones removed and replaced with titanium, and then I grind up the... Uh, uh, to make that yeah, white. and yeah. I make the white pigment out of my own bones. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's very old-fashioned, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, my, my white-on-white paintings are really there to, because I'm a Zen Buddhist, and they represent for me nothingness. So I, th I think nothing is much more important than your bones, actually. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> well I, was, I was talking about my old ones. My new ones... <laughs> I, I actually, I, I, I buy Dutch masters at auctions at tremendous cost, and then I paint them over with white acrylic. Uh -huh. And the art world is completely scandalized by this. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good idea, though. Um, funnily, funnily enough, I bought one of yours and painted it over white. <laughs> But I know, I actually made a loving recreation of that, and I, but I hang it upside down. <laughs> <laughs> but um, lately, I mean, the, all this kind of conceptual art is fun, but I've gone figurative lately, and I'm now painting snow scenes. <laughs> very retro of you. Yeah, it's very retro. But, but they're accurate, they're perfectly white. In fact, I, I'll, I'll show you one later. I've got, I've got a few examples here. Um, in fact, I can just hold one up for the audience to see that. Oh, oh, right. Is, have you seen that one before? <laughs> Actually, you know, it's, it's, it's very funny because mine, I did the same thing much smaller, but put a big border around it. <laughs> I, I, like, I, I like the border idea. Back, back to the more serious issue of this evening, however. So, so what interests me is how cultural objects like white paintings and so on help us form our notions about things. And um, Stuart, Stuart Brand, who introduced us, um, was very alert to that when in the late 60s, I guess it was, or the early 70s, he started a campaign to release, for NASA to release the picture of the whole Earth the first picture of the Earth taken from space. And the point about an image like that is that it changes the way you think about things. So the clock of the long now is really supposed to be that kind of mythic, metaphorical um, presence, something that would make you think differently, perhaps. And I had an example of how powerful this can be about, I don't know, nearly 20 years ago now. I, I, went to the British Museum. I had a friend working there who was the curator of the Egyptian department. And he said, you should come sometime and look downstairs because we've got tons of stuff in the basement that we never show. 
And indeed, the basements of the British Museum snake out under a large part of London, and they're filled with the antiquities that we successfully looted from Egypt over a period of several hundred years. Um, and he took me around. There were shelves and shelves of dusty artifacts. And on one shelf, there was a tiny little bronze casting, um, not more than an inch and a half long. And it was of, of a mother cat feeding four kittens. And this was done with incredible precision and care and, and real love, you know. And it was 4,000 years old. And looking at that thing, I suddenly knew more about the Egyptians than in all the reading I'd ever done. Because I suddenly realized here was a people who 4,000 years ago were fond of pets, could have the, a loving relationship with a pet in the, in the way that we're used to doing. This is something we tend not to imagine about people 4,000 years ago. So in that one object, I, I think I... I had more of a feeling for Egyptian culture than all the huge things I'd seen, the pyramids and the Sekhmets and the um, vizier of Memphis and so on. And sometimes I think an object, once it's in existence, can, can have that effect on you. Um, and that's what works of art do, I think. And so I think the way we think about the clock now is possibly more as a work of art than as a functioning machine, although it is a functioning machine, or will be. And, uh, of course, Danny... I think of it more as a functioning machine, yeah. Do you? But, I, I, I mean, I don't know exactly... I mean, if, if the art... If by art you mean the conversation, mm -hmm. then, yeah, I suppose it's a conversation piece. Yeah. It's a conversation piece, so it's, a, it's sort of really meant to introduce a conversation, I think, isn't it? It's, it's, sort of, it's there, and it starts you talking about it. I mean, what I, what I notice when I talk to people about the clock is they say, well, that, that's a pretty daft idea. I mean, how can you know what's going to happen in 3,000 or 5,000 years' time? And, of course, in, and then we start talking about that, and after a little while, they realize that they are starting to do something they've never done before very often, which is to think about the distant future. So, sure. so it does start the conversation. Should we actually try to talk a little? And the interesting thing about trying to talk over that time frame, of course, is that you can't, you really can't imagine it. But yeah. trying to is, is fun. And um, there are a few kind of standard I would say standard imaginations of the future mm -hmm. over really long time frames. Um, one of which is the kind of earth becomes a garden and there's a poets and artists and things who are all watched over by machines of love and grace, mm -hmm. kind of the, the robots taking care of them. And, and then the other one's the road. Yeah, they kind of, <laughs> yep. And so that's the one where we sort of fail to solve so there's, there's one of them, one end there, these sort of utopias where we imagine we solve all of our problems completely and then our biggest problem is boredom. Mm -hmm. And the other end of the spectrum is that, that we imagine we don't solve our problems and we somehow fail to and we end up with The Road or Mad Max or you mm -hmm. know, some dystopia of everything falling apart. That's the one that seems to be more popular in science fiction these days. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, 
actually, my guess is that the truth is probably neither of those. That probably, if you look backwards, what's happened is humanity has always had new challenges mm -hmm. and always kind of risen to the occasion, met those challenges, and that meeting those challenges was living. And then by the time they met those, there were more and so on. So you had a, a series of, of challenges. Mm -hmm. and, my assumption is actually that that's probably what the next 10,000 years are going to be like. We're going to have lots of challenges. They're going to be really big problems like global warming, and mm -hmm. we'll figure out ways of solving those. And you know, there'll be probably social challenges. I mean, I think we've got a huge one coming up. Of, for instance, uh, distribution of wealth. I just I just read that the um, 85 richest people in the world actually own half the wealth in the world. Wow. So, you know, that's clearly something that is a, I don't think that's a stable situation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good guess, yeah. <laughs> um, and, but how do we, you know, but so, you know, there, there, there are challenges like that, but we're going to yeah. have to, we're going to have to figure out ways of setting things up, ways of relating to each other, ways of, you know, having our culture, mm -hmm our economic systems, our political systems, things like that. And yes, I so, suspect it will so, be a series of... Yeah. Well, a lot of, what, a lot of what will happen in the future depends on peop what people expect to be about to happen. So, so I think it makes a huge difference if you think that you live in a time where the graph is going up, as we did in the 60s, or in a time where the graph is going down, as it seems my daughter's generation do. I mean, generally, they don't seem to expect things to be better. They don't seem to expect that they'll be able to just float on a cloud and probably find a job if they're lucky and not bother if they don't, if they're not. Um, so to me, it seems to be that at the moment, there's a kind of expectation that things are getting slightly worse, not dramatically, but slightly worse. Um, I think if people start to think that things are going to get much worse, then a very dangerous feedback spiral starts, a kind of, you know, the survivalists are, are the good example of this, people who think that the future is self-defense and making a safe corner for yourself and fighting everybody else off. Um, that is not a generous future. So, so one, of, one of the reasons this is important to think about, actually, is to try to see whether that's realistic as a, as a future picture. Um, whether, in fact, we can come up with a slightly more upbeat one. So, when, when I grew up, I guess this universal assumption was everything was getting better. Mm -hmm. And we were people, I think, in retrospect, were pretty naive about it. But, um, but actually, things in many ways did get a lot better, things like civil rights and mm -hmm. certainly economically, um, you know, the, you know, I was better off than my parents were, and they were better off than their parents were, and so on. So, in many ways, it delivered. I mean, there were unintended side effects that people weren't paying attention to much, but you know, there was definitely a trend, and and people were worried then about sort of running out of the frontier. But the assumption was that space would be the the new frontier. And I know you and I disagree about this. So, it's worth your. <laughs> You're sort of giving your your side of this, but yeah, my my feeling is that um, I can't imagine why anybody would ever want to live on the moon or on Mars or 
on any other planet. I just can't imagine it. I think it's unthinkably daft idea. You know, we have to be very well adapted to this one and really badly adapted to any of those. So, so I, think that, I think the short-term thinking in that <laughs> is that you assume that who we are sort of stays the same. Yes, okay. So, and so, you know, now that we have... But the, how quickly can we evolve? Well, well, now that we have the ability, I mean, I think one of the big game-changers, I mean, I think there's a few... We're, we're alive at a very exciting time because we have three big game-changers one of which is globalization, suddenly we're, that's the, the whole earth, we are one world. One of which is computers, obviously, but the other one is synthetic biology. We have the ability to manipulate physically what we are, too. So, you know, while I probably wouldn't want to live on Venus in this body, that I could imagine adapting myself so that I would want to live on, certainly, Mars. Mm -hmm. um, and that Mars, you know, I'm, might just love skiing on Mount Olympus and you know, that's, you know going out and having a breath of the fresh well, Martian if, atmosphere. Yes, there, there are that's there a, are people who have pioneer spirits, I guess, and a lot of them came here, of course, but us who didn't come here. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you think over over the kind of ten thousand year time frame though, we're going to do yeah. things like that? Yes. In, in that time frame, I think. And, and surely we'll build starships, and you know, there are probably planets out there that are much more Earth-like than Mars is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even though it takes a long time to get there, you can imagine you know, solving the technical problems. And I yes. don't know. So to me, it's, it does seem pretty inevitable that we probably, Earth is just our starting point. Yes, now if I, if I told this story to my daughters, who are both very eco, they would say, that's just an excuse for not dealing with the problems on this planet. We're just going to go and fuck up another one. Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what your daughters would say. <laughs> I heard a very nice expression. It's okay. It's in quotes. It, it's in quotes. Yes, yeah, somebody said, fuck is the duct tape of the English language. <laughs> But um, if, if you think about future people and you try to think of the sort of axes on which they'll dispose their thinking. Um, so throughout the Cold War, we, theoretically, the discussion that we were having was should it be communist or should it be capitalists? So that's a, that's a discussion that um, Americans think have been, has been successfully and satisfactorily resolved, but not everybody agrees. Um, but there are, lots of, there are lots of similar discussions like that. There's the optimists and there's the pessimists. Well, there's the planners and the improvisers. Planners and the right. improvisers, yes. The, the uh, libertarians and the statists, shall we say. Pe people who believe that as little government as possible is the best thing and people who believe that government and politics is essential. So there are lots of possible long-term arguments that will go on in the future. And, and, of course, these things aren't exclusive. They cut across each other in funny ways. Um, sorry. So, so do you imagine, so actually, it's, it's kind of an interesting question because clearly the, so when, when I grew up, the we we talked about was Americans. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, as I got older, the we, I mean, I think a lot of the discussion, the we that we talk about, for instance, that 
as the global warming problem is the whole world, mm -hmm. or at least, but although, you know, when we talk about we responding, we, it's, it's the West, it's Europe, and it's the, yeah. the rich countries. And, you know, the, there's maybe another we in China, or you know, maybe Africa is another one. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, they're, they're, but they've gotten to be smaller and smaller numbers, sort of bigger units. Yeah. And so the question is, are we ever going to get to the point where there's a single world we that we sort of all feel, or does this, do these axes sort of necessarily imply a division? Yes, I, I think that there's, there's a sort of basic um, engine within humans to to create a distinction always, so that as soon as there is something that seems to be consolidating into a single vision, there's going to be power and distinction in making another one in opposition to it. So, so I, I agree with that, but I think one of the things that's changed is it used to be that we sort of did the we thing by connecting it to a piece of territory. Mm -hmm. And so it was really the people that grew up around you tended to have a similar religion as yours. They tended to eat similar foods. Yeah. They, send a, they, they had a, a similar political framework. And so when you had these you know, arguments about, say, uh, capitalism versus communism, they were associated with geographic entities, mm -hmm. nation states. Mm -hmm. And nation states were ways of organizing things around physical borders. And so that you did everything in one place. So in France, you spoke French, and you ate French food, and mm -hmm. you, you know, had French culture and French politics and so on. Yeah. And obviously, well, obviously to me, we're, we're moving away from that as the only organizing principle. Mm -hmm. um, so do you imagine even nation states are going to be around? thousands of years from now? Well, I think that's, that's a really interesting question because they now have a very serious competitor anyway in the form of corporations. You know, we, we now have corporations that are international and that sort of dispose themselves at will across nation states of their choice. And they're becoming very powerful, as, as every, everybody knows, as, as sort of governmental forces as well, in that they can they can make governments behave to a certain extent how they want. So there's a, there's a kind of natural tendency of things to organize themselves into larger units, mm -hmm. like, for instance, single-cell organisms organizing themselves into multi-cell organisms or people organizing into societies. And it's kind of, I think, a trend of information processing. That yeah. it, it just does that. And I used to wonder what it would feel like to be kind of if we were the single cells of kind of this group mind mm -hmm. emerging. And one of the things I realized about it is, one thing about it is it wouldn't necessarily have exactly the same goals as you. Mm -hmm. And you would influence it, but it would sort of seem to have a life of its own. And actually, I think that's sort of what corporations feel like, mm -hmm. that really they don't have the same goals as any of the people in some sense they have the goals of the employees, or the goals of the owners, or the goals of the customers, or the goals, you know, kind of a mix of all of those people influence what the corporation does. But in a very real sense, the corporation is a kind of a group mind that has a will of its own that yeah. may be different than the wills of any of the people. Yeah. In it. 
But don't, don't you think also that just as there's a, a tendency for things to agglomerate and become bigger and bigger and bigger, there's, also an, there's still always an advantage to the small, fast unit because the things that become bigger and bigger and bigger be, tend to become slower and slower as well. They have much more inertia. They, don't, they can't change quickly. So, so they can control a lot of things, but they don't deal with the future as well as... That's true, but now we have a different way of doing things because now we can be parts of lots of different things. Mm -hmm. So I can, be, I can be part of many, I don't want to call them communities because they're sort of one-dimensional. Yeah. But in some sense, I can, I can be part of Long Now and um, I could also have a religion Mm -hmm. Or I could also, you know, be a part of a certain scientific community. There. Yeah. And, and those are ways of kind of fractionating, but I'm fractionating me. So I'm saying I'm not making the community smaller. Each mm -hmm. of those can be very big communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, I'm, not sure we're, I'm not sure our brains are really designed that way. You know, yes. brains are clearly more designed for the, the small the village of a few, the tribe. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, well and, and certainly we seem, to, we seem to always want to put things together into that, that small number that yeah. we can handle. And in fact, if you, if you look at tribes, I think um, if anthropologists that have studied modern tribes see that there's this thing that happens once you get a group that gets more than about 200 people, it does tend to split off. Like yeah. some, some division develops within the group and it sort of splits and yeah. almost like... Yeah. Well, there, there was a very interesting um, survey done by this German magazine called De Stern about 25 years ago. De Stern um, interviewed people in 38 countries, quite a large sample in each of those countries, and a well-chosen sample. And they asked them a couple of very simple questions. They said... Are you happy? And do you think your life will be fulfilled? And the two countries, well, of the list of 38, the country that came bottom was West Germany, um, which at that time was the richest economic power or the most thriving in the world, actually. It was really doing very well at that point in time. The countries that came top were Northern Ireland and South Africa. Northern Ireland was in the middle of just about the worst IRA period, and South Africa was in the middle of the apartheid struggles. And de Stern was having trouble trying to explain what this result. It seemed very anomalous. But it occurred to me that perhaps what people really value is knowing who their friends and enemies are. There's a certain security in knowing perfectly well that this person's on your side and you really need each other, and those people aren't. Um, the, of course, the, the West Germans were the most ambiguous of all people in that respect because they didn't dare have any enemies. They were so embarrassed by their past that they wouldn't uh, stand, take a stand against anybody. So does the enemy have to be another set of people or could it be an external challenge? Well, I think it could be an external challenge, and, and I think it has been sometimes in the past um, that people have... Uh, suddenly stood against something. And it may be, a, again, that that will happen with, you know, our response to climate change, that 
perhaps if things get really bad, we'll suddenly realize that we have a real enemy. I mean, or, states... Or, or maybe the Martians will invade. Yes. Well, states like to have enemies in, in a certain respect because if, if you have an enemy, you're allowed to have a command economy. And even democratic states would secretly like to have a command economy. It's much easier to run things. And so, so, so that feels to me like, I mean, I think it's true of the history of the world, but I bet it's not true of the future of the world. So I think we're already starting to organize things in different ways other than by enemy. Mm -hmm. I, well, um, I hope so, yeah. yes, yeah. And I think and you uh, can, What do you think well, are those ways? Well, well actually, I, so I think that there is, there's a kind of international culture that is a kind of global culture. And then there is fundamentalism of all sorts is the enemy, or, or the people that are organizing themselves by that being the enemy. Yes, what we and call so, the switch it offists. Yeah, so the, these are the people who want yeah. to switch it off. Yeah, so if you're a fundamentalist Christian or Muslim, and you really believe that you've got it down the way the world should be, then in fact that, that kind of international global culture really is a, is a real threat mm -hmm. to the way that you think life should be lived, yeah. and it is the enemy. So that becomes an organizing principle for those people. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in a time, I think, where we have the islands of people who have and, and very effectively organized themselves against the enemy of global culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And maybe, I guess, global culture hasn't so effectively organized itself, and yet it does seem to be thriving, I think. Well, it seems to absorb all its enemies quite easily. <laughs> yeah, you know, it well, thrives by just being tempting. The Borg. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nice alternative. Well, that, that's actually another, that's another possible view of the future, mm -hmm. sorry, from science fiction, is that we do somehow merge together in some world mind that doesn't have any enemies, and mm -hmm. the, the Borg thing in Star Trek, which... I always felt what, a bit of what is it? The, the Borg. Borg, yes. The Borg. The, the Borg. What? Yes, they the were. The singer, Bjork. <laughs> <laughs> she in Star Trek, is she? Oh, I've got to see that one. He knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, it, it, it's a little bit, I mean, of course, that's meant to be a horrifying idea, but. In some sense, they seem sort of happy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the villains always seem to have quite a good time, doesn't it? That's what they say in Ireland. The devil but, gets all the good songs. <laughs> but they're not really even villains if you sort of think that, you know, they sort of like this group mind. They're, they're more missionaries, mm -hmm. right? Yes, yes. Well, of course, the concept of villainy is, is also very interesting. As, as we discover more and more that people's behavior is kind of the result of how they're built. You know, men with double Y chromosomes are much more likely to be violent. And in fact, prison populations have sort of 20 times the number of double Y chromosome people in the prisons than outside of the prisons. So um, th th I kind of wonder about that, whether we find out that more and more the things that we have in the past criminalized are simply the result of whatever chemicals you happen to have running around in you, no fault of your own. 
So what happens then to, to the idea of um, justice or legal sanction of some kind? Do we, just, do we just think, well, poor guy, he's bound to be violent. Let's build him a nice place where he won't hurt anybody, but he won't be punished. Is, is that a future, do you think, that we, that we stop thinking of good people and bad people or good and bad things at all? And we simply think of things that we want to avoid and things that we want to embrace. Yeah, I, I, I guess, for, for example, one thing, you know, the chemicals running around in you won't be no fault of your own. In the future. Because you'll have, you, you'll have right, a choice. You'll yes. have choice of it. You'll have control of it. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in um, one future. In one future, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I don't... I mean, I think there are... Some, certainly they're sociopaths and things like that, but I guess I believe less and less in kind of uh, good people and bad people in normal life. I mean, mm -hmm. extremes aside, mm -hmm. you know, mentally ill people aside. Mm -hmm. I think there are people that have ideas that are in conflict with your ideas and goals that are in conflict with your goals. And so ultimately, I think a lot of su a successful society is in finding a sort of system for dealing with those conflicts, a political system. Mm. So I think probably a lot of designing the future is designing the political system of the future. Which, of uh, course, is not a popular pursuit in this part of the world. No, it's, it's something people have almost given up on. I yeah. think it's, uh, people assume that democracy is the you know, one person, one vote is the be-all, end-all of political systems. Mm. And I think well, it's actually... I think further than that, people, people in California in particular assume that politics is no longer really at all cool to even think about, but it's sort of... It's well, an the, old story. It's well, an old the, yeah, yeah, the discussion of politics is it comes down to sort of a almost gossip about people, it's personality mm. of the people that are doing things, but there's almost no discussion about the actual structure of the political system. Yeah. And yet it's clear that that's why it's not working. It's not, I mean, you could put really the, probably the best people in the world into the current system that we have, and they would almost certainly act badly mm. because they would have to to, to stay in office. Mm -hmm. So somehow we've constructed a system you know, when if you if you go back to, to Tocqueville, which I know you're a fan of too, mm. the, the, or or actually go back to the Federalist Papers, the the thing people were really worried about in the early days of American democracy was the tyranny of, of the majority, mm -hmm. and the fear that 51 percent of the people would impose their will on 49 percent. But actually, what's happened? partly because of corporations and partly because of concentrations of wealth, is the tyranny of the minority. It's people who have special interests and have some ability to get votes either by arousing emotions or spending money. Mm -hmm. um, that you can basically get a law passed that is bad for almost everybody but good for you. Mm -hmm. As long as it's just a little bit bad for everybody. Yeah, And so we have a political system now where that's really the norm. Almost every piece of legislation that gets passed 
really is compromised by, by that effect. Mm -hmm. And I don't hear much serious discussion about you know, how we could build a different system where that didn't happen in a world that does have corporations and does have very wealthy people. Yeah. yeah well, yes, in a, in a world that doesn't assume we're going to just push it all away and start again, which isn't going to happen. You know, we, we don't have the option of starting from scratch, so we have to start from here. But, um, I, oh, oh <laughs> so, the yeah, so we, 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 we've agreed with Stuart that when we, when we have about 10 minutes left, he's going to cue us, and I think that... That might have been <laughs> it. <laughs> but, because we wanted, there was one thing we wanted to be sure that we got to talk about, which was um, how the bells work. Oh, yes, yes. The chimes... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So that's our 10-minute signal to talk about those, but... Um, I better put this on. When we... Um, when I first came to Brian, even before the foundation started, and said, hey, I'm building this clock, would you help me figure out what sound it should make when it mm -hmm. chimes? Brian discovered this remarkable... He was thinking about it and said, well, clearly make it different chime every time it... Yeah, so, so we're talking about 10,000 years, and, and I realized that if you had 10 bells, there were about the number of permutations of 10 bells as there are days in 10,000 years. It's 3,628,800 permutations of 10 bells. So, so I thought, oh, that would be lovely if you had 10 bells, and every single day in those 10,000 years has its unique peal. And uh, so we worked on that, on that basis, and I asked Danny if he could think of a, come up with an algorithm that would generate those 10,000 unique permutations, uh, sorry, 3,628,800 permutations. So he came up with an algorithm, which he will tell you about. And, it, uh, yeah. and, and in fact, it's, it's the mechanism in the clock, and you, you saw pictures of this earlier. Ooh, this, sorry, I, I need to put another light on here. Can we see that? I think, yeah. Upper. I knew we shouldn't push buttons. Can you well, see that? Yes. Okay, well, that's, that's a little counter in the clock. Actually, let's try to, let, let me just describe the algorithm. That's a... It's very high-tech stuff here. <laughs> We're right at the cutting edge of... Okay. So imagine the 10 bells are going to ring. So you sort of have 10 positions, which I've illustrated by 10 circles. <laughs> so there's the first bell, the second bell, and so on. And what you want is every combination, every sequence of bells to happen in 10,000 years. So let's say our first bell, which happens to be the C bell, which is... Right. Let's say it's in the third position. So what we want to do is we'll leave that in the third position for, say, a thousand years. <laughs> and then after a thousand years, we move it to the next position. And then after a thousand years, we move it to the next position, yeah. and so on. So, so you can see over 10,000 years, it gets to be in every position. And then what we'll do is we'll take the next, we'll take the next bell, the D bell, and it has eight places, uh, it has nine, nine. places yeah. to be. Mm -hmm. So we move it through each of those nine positions, 
during that thousand years. So about once, a little bit more than once a century, it will move. And then the E-bell has eight positions, and it will move through those about once a decade. So it will, and then so on. So each, each bell moves more rapidly. And so by the time you get to the last couple of bells, the last position is moving every day. So actually, this is a nice picture. If you, this is Brian's album cover, but you can kind of see. So we worked out the, this, this is the peal of bells for the month of January, 7,003. Um, so each color represents a bell. So you can see that these bells stay in the same position. And actually, this, I think, would be the C bell. Mm -hmm. And but you know, the higher bells are moving around in position. In fact, the two highest bells always change position every day. And so what you need to do is basically count through. So the one bell has to count through 10 different possible positions. The next bell has to count through nine different possible positions. The next one counts through eight and so on. So, so what these mechanisms that you see in the clock are, this is just one of them, are counters. Actually, maybe show the little physical model of the better thing. So for instance, this would be the bell that has to count through six different positions would have a little thing in it like this. And so every time the bell that counts through five positions counts through all five, it rotates around and advances that counter. And then there would be another one. This would be connected to one that had seven positions, and that would be connected to one that had eight positions, and so on. So that's the basic mechanism that, that's there inside the clock. And it produces the sequence that the clock actually plays. And of course, the clock will only play you know, one thing in the sequence um, every time you visit it at noon. So if you climb up to the mountain and go inside the mountain, if you're there at noon, you'll, you'll hear the sequence of 10 bells. But we should, can we play the? Yes, well, we, we should tell them, actually, that this isn't fictional. This, yeah. <laughs> this, is, um, this actually does exist now. This is being built. Um, the yeah. These, these things are about eight feet in diameter in the real thing. So. Not, not plastic, no. They're, <laughs> they're made of stainless steel and titanium and things like that. What? They'll last 10,000 years. They should do. I mean, stainless steel is pretty durable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it really ought to last for 10,000 years, every part of the clock. Every part of the clock that moves, for example, we've tested the motion of it for 10,000 years' worth of motion. So the part that moves most often is, for instance, you know, the um, pendulum escapement, but, you know, the bearings inside of it, things like that. So we've really tested all of those things and, you know, Unless somebody comes and deliberately destroys it, it will last 10,000 years and keep going and still have the correct time after 10,000 years. Um, and every day, if you actually you know, go to the trouble of going out to the desert and climbing up the mountain and going through those tunnels that you saw in the slides made and climb up the spiral staircase that's cut in the shaft and go past the machinery and climb up into the clock chamber at noon, then when the sun goes overhead at noon, the light will shine into the clock chamber and will adjust itself for noon, and then the chimes will come on. So this, just to explain briefly before we play this, um, 
this, these are not bells, they're synthesized bells. And I was experimenting with the idea of making bells with particular properties that most bells don't really have. And in fact, since, um, since doing this, we've, we have found a bell maker who is, who is making bells with very unusual properties. They, he can specify the sets of harmonics that they have. So what you're about to hear doesn't really sound like any bells you've ever heard before and probably doesn't sound like any bells that will ever exist. It's more a sort of proof of concept of this idea of um, um, permutating 10 bells. So maybe you could play that, please. Stuart, do you have some questions for us? This is, right. this is for sale in the lobby, by the way. And all proceeds benefit Long Now Foundation. <laughs> so these are questions from the audience, as filtered yeah, by Stuart. Yeah, I was going through, for, looking for a kind of a rowdy one, because this has been a little sacred sounding lately. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, here's a rowdy one. Uh, either one of you can answer it. <laughs> I can't tell if it's runes or hieroglyphs or what. We need that on the document camera. It's a piece of art. There you go. So actually, one question we had from Kevin Kelly. Um, you guys have been collaborating and conversing and having these road trips for quite a while now. And a legitimate question is, what have you learned from each other, in a sense, generically? Uh, Kevin asks, Danny, are you more artistic from collaborating with an artist? He and Brian, are you that. more, quote, scientific <laughs> from collaborating with a science, scientist and inventor? Well, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things that... Um, Danny asked a very interesting question a few years ago, which was one that had been bothering me as well. He was asked by John Brockman to as were a number of other people, to come up with 
the question that most interested him as a scientist. And he said, um, why do people do music? And if you think about that question, that's a profoundly interesting question. Why on earth would we bother to do this? Or painting or any of the other things. But music is a very mysterious art in, in general. It's very mysterious. Why would we would bother to get excited about one color against another or one sound against another? So we, um, we've talked about that quite a lot. Meanwhile, uh, when we're driving around, we play records a lot, and Danny has discovered that he can sing, which he never knew before. <laughs> um, in fact, I tried to, uh, well, to some extent, I had some success in teaching him how to sing a cappella gospel. <laughs> which I will not do now, don't worry. <laughs> but, you know, but actually that... I was going to not use that example, but something that fits in with that, which is I, there's, a, there's a kind of attitude about the world, about being in the present, mm -hmm. which I've learned from you. Hmm. Um, I, I've always been very much in the future in my mind, always thinking about the next thing and so on. And, one of the things that you do very often is you will just stop. We'll stop by the side of the road, and you'll see, you know, some crumpled up piece of metal that's lying there, or something like that. And you'll just get fascinated by how the shadows are <laughs> falling on it, or you know, we'll we'll spend 15 minutes there looking at it from different angles, mm -hmm. and or you know, a sound that you hear, you know, a transformer making or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize that how, how little I wasn't in my own body, in my own senses. I mm -hmm. think this is partly what an engineering training teaches you to do, is sort of abstract away from that yeah. and, and not actually. And so I think as, you know, if I've looked, even the design of the clock, I've really shifted in thinking about where the important things were because even though I kind of wanted it to be about a conversation from the beginning, mostly I thought about the kind of mechanical things, how would it work, how would the materials last for 10,000 years, things like that. And I think more and more I've thought about the important part of it is what's the experience, what's the feel of it, what's mm. the... And that's kind of a new way of thinking. Yeah, I think this question is one piece of, in a way, maybe every 10 years, Long and Al sort of check in publicly with itself and the world. How are we doing? What's going on? What's changed over this period of time? And so far, it's just the same set of people, <laughs> by and large, who were around 10 or 20 years ago. But we aren't the same people anymore. Mm. And a fair question to ask both of you now, 20 years older, and 20 years of actually, astonishingly, two easily bored people <laughs> bearing down on the, the same set of design questions and framings. What's changed over that period of time? What you came to us, you came to this with beginner's mind 20 years ago. Well, you don't have beginner's mind now. You have some other mind about this. Mm -hmm. What can you say about what? What's the difference is? 
as um, Mao said when he was asked what he thought about the French Revolution, it's a bit too soon to say. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it does seem oh, a little we'll bit... we'll do them every hundred years. I got it. <laughs> the ten years it does seem a little bit like that. No, all, all I know now is that I... This conversation is one that I'm having quite a lot of the time with myself. So, so I... The, the idea of the future is a much longer idea than it used to be. You know, the future for me used to be a decade or two decades, I might think ahead. And now I, I, I often hear people talking about things and I think, yeah, that's true for 10 years, maybe 20 years, but what about 100? What about 1,000 years? Mm -hmm. So, so I, think, I think there has been a genuine extension and I also... Is that I, symmetrical? Is the past, the deeper past? Well, that might, well? Also, that might be symmetrical, actually, because I have also become much more interested in the deep past as well. You know, I, I, I think at least 50% of what I read is history, essentially. Yeah, here. How yeah. about Dan Danny, are you reaching I, for, I, farther, back farther? Um, I, certainly about half of what I read is history. Mm -hmm. that, that's true. Am I... Um, certainly, it gives me a different perspective when I see something. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, when I visited, you know, the the um, mayor's great, uh, the Getty, mm -hmm. the you know, I visited and saw this beautiful new building and thought, wow, this will make great rubble. <laughs> <laughs> Albert Speer was. Ordered to design that way by Adolf Hitler. Well, designed for the rubble. Designed for great right. rubble. Yes, it's the Thousand Year Reich. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. how are we different than that? <laughs> so, uh, I think. I think again. I mean, maybe the one thing I've learned about long-term thinking is the difference between long-term planning and long-term thinking. Yeah. Say more about that. My so, sense is we learned that at Yucca Mountain. Yeah, yeah. The, the, Yucca Mountain's a great example. So I, I guess I don't really believe in long-term planning, which is trying to take a long distance out and control the future for a long distance. Mm -hmm. So I, many of our attempts to look at, for instance, nuclear waste disposal mm -hmm. are things where you, you basically try to control the situation for 10,000 years. Right. And in some sense, Yucca Mountain is sold as that. Mm -hmm. But Yucca Mountain, I actually think, is a pretty good idea because everything is just sitting there in a can, and within 100 years, people will go in and get those and mine them for, you know, it's reversible. Mm -hmm. So it's really just a 100-year solution, but they give you a lot of options for what to do in 100 years. And so I've started realizing the right... By the way, it's a lot more politically tractable. Yeah, <laughs> mm. yeah. To say we're just going to park it here for 100 years right. and, and think and about it. That's right. And, and that's in, indeed where we're heading mm -hmm. by default, a, a less good 100-year yeah. solution. But, but the idea of creating options seems to be much more valuable than making really long-term plans. Yes, but, but um, the resistance to that, of course, is that people feel secure with long-term plans. And people don't feel secure with the idea that we'll always be improvising. Yeah, which, well, which I think is something that we have started to come to accept more and more. I mean, we, I'm just talking about... Okay, so this, I mean, the hacker ethic was to try to make everybody into 
a hacker, mm -hmm. capable of, of the maker movement is doing the same thing, make everybody into a maker. And in a sense, you would like to democracy with your acapella and everything else, helping make lots of people be artists, you're making, helping people be inventors. As more and more people are comfortable being that kind of creative, mm -hmm. does this kind of improvisational comfort come with it? Yes, well, I, I would hope so. I, th I, think, I think it certainly is a trend that I'm seeing. I mean, actually, the very interesting book came out in England. Um, I sent you a copy, but it hasn't arrived yet. It's by a historian called David Runciman, and it's called The Confidence Trap. And it's about, it takes, picks up from de Tocqueville and, and talks about democracy and how the sort of take-home from the book is that democracy is by nature messy and improvisatory. And the problems we always have with it is, is that people don't like messy and improvisatory, so they, they are very drawn to authoritarian solutions because they look so clear. Mm -hmm. The trains run on time or whatever, you know. Um, so he says, the trains are never going to run on time. Just get used to it. It's always <laughs> going to be a mess at, at, at the edge, of, adapting at the edges of, it, of its competence. So I think one thing that becomes clear when you look back at history is that there are kind of three different ways that people look at how time evolves and how, how mm. progress happens. Mm. And, and they shift in importance and dominance during different periods. So, um, for example, you know, in the West during the middle, uh, during the... Um, Dark Ages, you know, that time was thought of as very cyclic, mm -hmm. that it just, you didn't expect things to be different a thousand years from now. Mm -hmm. They were pretty much the same as they were for your parents and your parents' parents, and that was the expectation. There's a wheel of and fate, a, you do a, well, yeah, but you were going to be crushed that's, that's by right. it pretty so soon. So there was just a regular circle. Yeah. Hinduism it kind of has that idea built into it. Okay. It just things go around in circles, and your job in a world like that is to kind of get with the program and yeah. you know, be part of the cycle, mm -hmm. fit in. Mm -hmm. And then there's another kind of view of time, which is the one that I think has been dominant during most of our lifetimes. And the arrow in the of progress. States, the arrow of progress, that's mm -hmm. right. We're, we're doing something. So mm -hmm. if the cycle is the kind of the picture is, and, and interesting enough, the music of that time was kind of these cyclical, yeah. Yeah. you know, and, and, and the music that sort of corresponds to the era of progress is kind of the symphony. Yeah. It's everything's under control and it has a beginning and it's heading toward a crescendo and yeah. it's developing and everybody's following the score mm -hmm. and it's heading someplace. Yeah. And, it's, um, and or the factory is kind of the, you know, you put in all kinds of random stuff and then you get out what you want at the end. So it's all very goal-directed and it's, it's the everything's getting better kind of point yes. of view that we yes. had growing up, mm -hmm. that we're you know, we're going to conquer space, or we're going to, you know, just bigger and bigger frontiers. Yes. And so that's a, that's a kind of, and then what happens with that, I, and that's the sort of illusion of control, and then mm -hmm. you start realizing things aren't quite so controlled. And then there's another way of thinking, which is more like jazz, mm -hmm. which is the improvisation, the, the, and that basically it's not so much that we're heading someplace, and it's not, but we're not going around in circles either. Mm -hmm. right. We're kind of going with the flow. And your job in, so the, 
so that your job in, in that kind of world is to be responsive, tuned in, paying attention, mm -hmm. and, okay, and I think we're heading into a time where that kind of view of where we are is becoming more the dominant thing. We're heading out of the progress world mindset and into the, now I, I, I think that the cycle, what happens then is then that gets so chaotic that people long for the regularity of yeah. the cyclic thing yeah. and then you know, that begins to rise. And Question from Tanya uh, Katanjian. Our greatest fear is, so to speak, uh, how finite our time is. How does the clock counteract that sense of an ending? And does it help relinquish, assuage, or recontextualize that fear? That's a very nice question. I, I think um, Death. That, that would be wonderful <laughs> if that's what happened. <laughs> but, but I think it does in a way. I think that if you... Um, you know, the, the origin of that, that phrase, the long now, uh, which, which was an idea of, that I had years ago from when I lived in New York, it, it was really noticing that in New York, where I happened to live, which was downtown in edgy, then edgy Soho, before the bankers moved in, um, people lived in a very, very confined sense of both here and now. So when, you, when they said here, they meant these few blocks. They didn't mean New York City or America. Um, they meant this little area. Their sense of here was very sh small and their sense of now was very brief. Now for them meant from the end of last week to the end of this week sort of thing. Um, and I, I was thinking how a lot of societies um, have much, much, much more extended sense of now. You know, they think of now, your actions now, resonating into the distant future and the things you do now being the consequence of things in the distant past. So one of the nice things about that way of thinking, um, which by the way isn't the only way of thinking and it isn't necessarily the best way, it's an alternative, but one of the nice things about it is that you diminish in importance to some extent. Um, your life is not the primary event in the universe any longer. And I think that's very consoling, actually. I think that um, death is not such a terrifying thought if life is not so quite so, if your life is not quite so precious and um, the star feature of everything. So you both diminish and you also become much bigger because you see yourself as kind of a thread in something yes. much larger. Yes. So, you know, I, I, I think I do see myself much more than I ever did as just a little thread in this story of human mm -hmm. existence that does go over you know, many millennia. You know, it's gone over, you know, 10, certainly it's been going for 10,000 years and I believe it will go for 10,000 more. So you feel a part of something bigger. In some sense, you're, the fact that you know, you're only a little thread of that becomes less important. Yeah, you're both talking like old men. Uh, we are. Yeah, speaking as an even older man, I, I recognize the rap. Uh, so, in relation to that, Cameron Asadi asks, if you were to explain long now to a child, what would you say, what would you want the child to know about the long now in a sense of time? You both have kids. 
they've been around while you guys have been playing this stuff out, and you've seen them be amused or uh, bored or whatever by it, and you've also, you know, you've both encountered public dealing, ages of public dealing with this stuff. What connects, if anything, with the very young? Well, of course, I never explain anything like that to my daughters because one of, one of the sh surest ways of turning kids away from something is to um, enthusiastically endorse it in their presence. <laughs> <laughs> I always enthusiastically That's endorse the things question. like uh, hard drugs. You don't drugs explain it presence. to a child. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Danny, <laughs> you fuck up your kids then? <laughs> I think my kids are just more engaged in the fun of the activity of actually building the clock. And, right. uh, and to tell you the truth, I think that's mostly how I'm engaged in it, right. too. So, you know, these moments to sort of step back and decide what it all means and so on are not mm. the normal thing. Right. The normal thing is just sort of getting doing in there it. and doing yeah. it. Okay, so that's great. You're basically on a 20-year uh, track that got set a long time ago, and the fun is playing it out. And, of course, we're already starting to amuse ourselves. Right. What then, the hell are we going to do in Nevada after the Texas clock right. is built? Right, yeah. and, then, and then we get in these situations like this where you ask us, like, uh, well, you know, what, why are you doing it and where are you heading? And then we have to sort of make up answers. have to come up with an alibi. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, question from Alex for Danny. In the past, you've talked about the future getting closer with every year before the year 2000. And this is, you know, when you notice that, the future shrinking, that that set you in the process of, as an engineer, trying to solve the problem. Do you see new horizons forming for society to imagine for long now? So it was the year 2000 for a long time. What's it now, if anything? And should it be anything? It really was the year 2000. I, right. I was, was there. A big I was a professional futurist, and you couldn't get anybody to talk right. about yeah. 2003. It just was, it was a, actually, it was a film. You know, yeah. 2001. I don't sense another natural barrier coming up. Great. I think that Orbiting. the global warming thing, though, is, is everybody's sort of fear of the end in some mm -hmm. sense. And I don't think people think past that. Okay. So I think, um, and so there's a time scale that's sort of set by that that's a few centuries. And I do hear people now talking about that mm -hmm. time scale. Yeah, I've done that too. It's a century-sized um, problem, blah, blah, Right. I don't hear people talking much past that time scale of like, with the assumption that we get that solved much. So that maybe is setting the bound of the current conversation. What do you hear, Brian? Well, I hear quite a few people talking about the singularity as though it there is was a something about that, that's going so go to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm agnostic about it. I sort of doubt that it's going to happen because, again, I, I think we'll muddle along in the same mess that we always have done, and if it does happen, we won't notice it, really. <laughs> It'll just happen and we'll carry on. You know, maybe it has happened, actually. And, it, and it didn't, maybe it didn't notice us. Yeah, so. <laughs> yes. You think what? Two ships, maybe it, maybe two it ships has, passing in right. the night. It <laughs> has happened, and it, it did not notice us. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right in there with George Dyson's, uh, there are aliens and they're already here. They're just very small. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> in fact, yeah, that's where the singularity went, is into these <laughs> little creatures. Julie Hammond asks, uh, Ham Wood, sorry, asks, uh, could you share about a challenge or problem you've had in your life that presented an urgent, uh, an urgent problem, yet you approached it over a lengthy period of time with a long time frame about it? I, Have I'm you so done sorry, long-term thinking about any personal problems? A personal problem. Or a problem that you took personally. You don't have to go completely <laughs> soap well, opera here, but uh, something. I mean, of course, every day I do it in designing the clock. I mean, I have. Right. Right. So, you know, I ran into the Y10K bug in Microsoft Excel the other day. Explain that. There will be Microsoft stories for the next 10,000 years. No, it just doesn't handle five-digit year numbers, it turns out. It's a... How did this express well, itself? Well, I was building a spreadsheet calculating the position various years would be in in different times and crashed, you know, it did it wrong. So I think in, in the design of the clock, certainly every day I run into specific things. I mean, for example, the global warming. Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of this abstract discussion. If you're designing the synchronization system for the clock, where the sun shines down the hole and lights up, mm -hmm. you actually have to be able to calculate the altitude of the sun, which means knowing what day, what day it is a certain amount of time from now, mm -hmm. which means knowing how fast the Earth is spinning. And if the Earth warms and the polar ice caps melt, it actually makes a significant difference in how fast the Earth is Spinning, turning. Yeah. And so you have to build actually a correction system into the clock because of global warming that actually takes into account the possibility of maybe the ice caps will melt and maybe mm -hmm. they won't. Mm -hmm. So. Um, the that clock, was the question what, yes, from the question. Ben Morrow. Uh, yeah. What kind of it? climate change will the clock uh, withstand? And so, so the answer is it will withstand melting the polar ice caps. It's very um, high. It's, it's 6,000 feet up. Yep. It, it, it will... Um, the one in Texas is 6,000 feet? Yeah. Great. Okay. No problem. <laughs> And um, it's designed to, for example, handle uh, big changing weather patterns. It doesn't need a sunny day except once every 10 years or so. So I, it is designed with the assumption that there will be things like volcanic eruptions, that you, know, you don't get a, a clear sky for 10 years. Um, it is designed to assume that you know, the average temperature may get hotter or colder in the area that it is. Um, rain, you know, we're designing it in a desert, but it, you know, it may get a lot more rainfall, so mm -hmm. we're taking that into account. So this is pretty pedagogic. It, it's rather wonderful in a way. The, the clock, by dealing with these problems, then invites the people who think about the clock now or visit the clock in a while to engage basically the design process that you had to go through of, of thinking what kind of stuff happens over the long term and then how do you invent in the, 
Well, that I mean, we, we are literally area. right now talking to the uh, climatology community, asking for weather predictions under climate change scenarios for the, the spot where we're building the clock. And what are you getting? Um, we're getting people who have speculations, you know, mm -hmm. or you know, things that could happen. Um, nobody's willing to say this will happen, but we're trying to get the range of things that people are saying could happen. Okay. Um, Mr. Eno is a Zen Buddhist. How do you I'm reconcile not. the aims of the 10,000-year uh, clock project with the Buddhist notion of impermanence, asks Eric Schneider. Um, I'm actually not a Zen Buddhist, but... Well, I'm, so much for that. I'm um, <laughs> not embarrassed to be described as one, but... Um, what are you? Actually, <laughs> do you have any belief structure, whatever? I mean, <laughs> that sounds like an accusation, Stuart. <laughs> well, I'm just checking. <laughs> no, I don't think I do. Actually, I th I think I'm a, a You're an somebody who believes in in the muddle. The muddle. I'm a muddleist. <laughs> I more I more and more think that things just muddle along. Nearly there, everything just Are there rituals along. that muddlers... Muddle, muddlers, muddlers like me surrender to the muddle and love the process of surrendering to the muddle. Say more about surrender, Brian, you know. Well, surrender, yes, that's a subject that I'm very keen on. Um, shall I talk about that or Zen Buddhism? Surrender. <laughs> um, Which are not totally unrelated, but go ahead. No, I, what I'm have sure you got I, in surrender? I'm sure I can find a way to tie these, my answer to this question. <laughs> it's an old interviewee's trick. <laughs> um, so, I suppose I started making um, the kind of art that you saw before we came in, of these big light installations and the kind of music I've been making for a long time, sort of suggests to people that they should just let it happen to them, that they should surrender to it. Um, and indeed, the kind of behavior I see in my shows, my visual shows, is of people slumped in chairs in a semi-comatose state. Um, and that's actually the state I like to be in as well. Um, I'm very happy in that state. And I thought about this, and I thought, why do we like doing this? Because clearly a lot of people do like doing it. Um, they come not only to my shows, but they do lots of other things that involve surrender, like um, they go to churches or they go to parks or they sit by rivers where nothing much is happening, or they have sex with each other and surrender to that experience, or they take drugs, and that's a kind of surrender as well, you know. So I started thinking there's this kind of umbrella, which I call surrender, and underneath it, under the umbrella, are sex, drugs, art, and religion at least, and a few other things as well. Um, those are all activities in which you deliberately lose yourself. You stop being you, and you let yourself become part of something else. You let part, you surrender control of some things. And, um, of course, this is a big theme in Zen Buddhism, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> But it is, actually. <laughs> um, now, the, the idea being that, you know, we've had 
about 5,000 years of, of um, increasing technical control, and we, we pride ourselves quite naturally and quite reasonably on the fact that we are very good at control. Um, and of course, we, we all enjoy the consequences of it, you know, with the, the results of it. On the other hand, we had about um, two or four million years of mostly having to surrender, mostly having to go with the flow of things, and mostly having to learn to deal with whatever was thrown up by nature and the surroundings. Um, and I think surrendering is a great gift that human beings have. And I think that one of the experiences of art is, is relearning or rehearsing or continually trying again to be able to surrender properly, to be able to let things be out of our control and to live with them. And I suppose that the, one of the things about the, the idea of thinking in terms of in, of very long periods of time is what I was saying earlier, of losing that sense of yourself as the single focus of the universe's existence and seeing yourself as surrendering to the idea of being one small dot on this long line reaching out to the edges of time in each direction. Is there anything about Zen? That's, I think that did it. Danny, is, is, are there any elements of a surrender you're trying to build in for the experiencer of the clock in the mountain? Well, I guess I've come to increasingly appreciate that. Maybe that's what I was saying of what I've learned from Brian, because mm -hmm. I think when I was trying to say of sort of the, the be in the moment, except the, I mean, being an engineer, I'm normally in the mode of not surrendering and mm -hmm. fighting it and trying to wrestle it into the thing you want it to be. And so for me, being able to get out of that mode, which is I do think the mode that you're in when you're looking at the crumpled up piece of metal down on the road. Yeah. Is you're not trying to get it to be anything. That's right. Yeah. You're just trying to take it for what it is. Mm -hmm. and, yet, and, and that's... And, so you're using this consciousness to design a place which will be dark and out of, the, out of time and scary. Well, so exactly. So there are some specific things to try to get you to do that kind of surrender. Mm -hmm. So for instance, one of the things it does is that, it, first of all, it forces you to get away from your environment for a long time. Mm -hmm. By being far away, you have to spend a, day, a couple of days just getting there. Mm -hmm. And then it forces you by where it is on the mountain to wake up really early so you're sleep deprived and you're waking up before dawn to mm -hmm. get up to the mountain before noon. And then you go through this physical exertion. Mm -hmm. you know, climbing up that mountain is not easy. Mm -hmm. And also it deliberately gets you into kind of a state of confusion, a little bit of fear really. Mm -hmm. of maybe thinking you're in the wrong place, maybe. All of that's really to get you to leave behind all that idea of mm -hmm. you know, your plan, your control, your, you know, it's, it's meant to, in some sense, get you to surrender. I mean, mm -hmm. I never really thought of it that way before, but mm. to get you to give up on the idea that you're in control of the situation. And then that all sets you up for you know, the moment when you get to the clock. And, there's some chimes. scary things that happen along the way, as I recall, is sort of overhearing some of the design conversations, like the, 
This is this 300-foot spiral staircase that's cut in living rock. Uh, as I recall, as you go up, the stairs get narrower and narrower. Right. What's that about? Well, that's, again, putting some sense that... Okay, so, for example, one of the things it does is you go up that staircase, and so when you're at the top looking up there, you think you know where you're going because there's some light, at, mm -hmm. literally a light at the end of the tunnel, which you're heading up toward. Right. But as you get up there, the stairs get smaller and smaller. In fact, eventually, they taper off to so small you couldn't possibly walk on them. And so you sort of see that coming up, and you realize, oh, my, my plan isn't going to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that's an example. And then, you know, at some point, you know, you go off in a different direction. Of course, there are ways forward, but there, there are different ways than maybe what you were expecting. And so you end up having to turn away from, get away from that idea of progress and heading mm -hmm. toward the light and take a side track. And so those are deliberately designed in to kind of get you out of, Mm -hmm. maybe kind of fool you into thinking for a minute you, you have a plan and then making you realize you don't. You're not, you're not in control of the situation. That's life. Um. <laughs> Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.